You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. I used to be from Missoula. Maybe that's where you got it. <laughs> You're probably wondering, who am I and what am I doing here? Let me give you a little bit of a sketch. Um, about 43 years ago, we left the flatland of Illinois. Anybody from Illinois here? Yeah, I just talked to a bunch of you who were, yes. You know how flat it is there. We always wanted to live in the mountains. And so we came out to Missoula. And we were here for a few years and met a family up here in St. Ignatius by the name of Larson. And uh, that was back in the days before there, was such a thing, before there was such a thing as Pine Haven Christian Children's Ranch. We saw that begin, um, again from the beginning, <clears throat> have um, supported it and uh, appreciated it all through the years that it's come to be what it is now. Anyway, we were in Missoula for a while. And I'll oh, see. Spent a uh, couple summers up at Lake Mary Roman, Ronan and got acquainted with the Larson family, all of them, a lot better up there, and had a great time. After a while, we uh, I went back into the Navy and left the area and spent a number of years as a sailor traveling around the world, and, but uh, always had this deep place in our heart that says we want to go back to Montana. And yet circumstances got in the way. We had obligations and commitments to family and so forth. We ended up in a place called Indianapolis, Indiana. Anybody from there? Oh, okay, good. And uh, we're stuck there for a few years. Couldn't get out of there. <laughs> and lo and behold, somebody came up to us and said, you want to sell your house? And we said, yes. So we packed up our bags and about a year and a half ago, we came out back to Montana, where we longed to be. We wanted to be close to Glacier National Park and the National Bison Range. We love that place. And uh, I think we own half interest in it by now by all of our frequent visits there. So uh, we've been here about a year and a half and uh, know the Larsons well. And Bob found out I was in the area and extended the offer to come down here and uh, share in uh, preaching here for the, the time being. So glad to be here with you. Voice is getting raspy, so I may take a little sip of water once in a while. Let me start off. I'm not going to gargle in the microphone. Okay. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, and have that ready. That's the diving board for our message this morning. And let me If you ever wake up some morning and you don't have anything that you can think of to be thankful for, well let me give you a couple of suggestions. First of all, be thankful you're not living under that Old Testament law that was such a burden upon people. And with that be thankful and rejoice that your salvation is now by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is always something to be thankful for and never lose sight of. 
And it's the prime reason we gather around this table every Lord's Day, lest we forget to ensure that we always remember our Savior who gave his life for us. Without Christ, we would be helpless, hopeless, but with Christ Jesus, we always have an occasion for rejoicing and thanksgiving. So don't wake up without being thankful. Now I'm getting far afield from what I came to preach about and I don't make any apologies for the diversion. I just wanted to make it clear right up front where I stand with regard to the Old Testament law and God's grace. I am for salvation by God's grace 100%. But in my message today, I want to take you back to the Old Testament law. And to begin with, um, one law in particular, what I think is the weirdest, strangest law in the whole Bible. And it's found <clears throat> for the first instance in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, the last half of that verse. But it's repeated three times. Uh, it also in Exodus chapter 34, verse 26. And then again in Deuteronomy 14, verse 21. Same words, same phrase over again. So it reads the same in each passage. And if you would allow me, I'd like to share what it says from a modern paraphrase called the message. <coughs> and I'll read it again a little bit later from some actual translations. But the message says it in a way that meets my purposes. And here's the law I'm talking about. Look, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk. This is a simple rendering, an accurate and simple rendering of the law given to Moses. And from it, I've given my sermon a title, Don't Boil Your Kids. Hope, hoping that that title jolts you enough that maybe you'll remember uh, this passage, the three passages, and the message that I'm giving that goes with the title, Don't Boil Your Kids. Yes, there is actually this law in God's word that tells Israelites not to boil their kids. Here's some reliable translations from the King James, which I'm using this morning. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. The New American Standard, I see you have that in your pew Bibles. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Or the New International Version that I use most of the time, do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. Certainly this sounds strange to our, our ears, and raises questions in our minds of why on earth did God have such a law in his word? Was this just some trivial little old law that got stuck in the law of Moses for no good reason? Or if there was a reason, what on earth could it be? Think about it. Could there possibly be anything in an Old Testament law against boiling kids that has anything to do with us in the age of grace and in the 21st century? Don't boil your kids. Stick with me. And let's see if we can bring this old, old law down to you and me today. First of all, let's just take a closer look at what is at this law to get a clearer understanding of just what it says and means. First thing to note, it is a command. This law clearly gives a command from God that he wanted to be obeyed. And it has the word not included in it. Uh, do not boil a kid in his mother's milk. 
And that means it's a prohibition, something you're not supposed to do at all, like in never. Don't do this. And this is the language and voice of authority coming from God himself, something that the Jews, the Israelites, were not to do. Now, there's different words for boiling. I read the King James, which says, use the word seethe. That's an old word that people like me understand. Uh, we used to say, I seethed with anger when somebody made me mad, and I got boiling mad, is what we'd say. Uh, Hebrew cooks used this word to mean that they were cooking something to the point it was done and ready for eating. In these verses, the cooking was done in liquid, and so that would mean boiling. And then the thing to be boiled, or not to be boiled in this case, is a kid, not Israelite boys and girls. The Hebrew word clearly means a young goat, that kind of a kid. And what it was not to be boiled in was its mother's milk. And that's pretty specific. Not just any milk. Don't boil a goat in, in milk of any kind, but milk taken directly from the kid's own mother. So what we have is God's law, authoritative, in the form of a prohibition, something you are not to do, against boiling a young goat in its own mother's milk. Pretty clear and to the point. But again, why? Why would God give such a law? I can't, I can't think of anybody doing such a thing in the first place to even have a prohibition against it. So why did God single out this particular activity and include it in his law? Not just once, but three times. I know the wisdom of God must be behind it all. And I trust his wisdom, but I still wonder why. And you know, it's not just me. For folks have been scratching their heads over this command for a few thousand years. I'll share with you some suggestions they've come up with to explain why God had such a law <clears throat> in his word. Jews of today look at this and conclude that God must not have intended for milk and meat to be mixed together. And where does that lead them? Well, a good Orthodox Jew will not go to McDonald's and buy a cheeseburger because you got milk and meat together. If you go to Israel today, they have non-kosher McDonald's and they have kosher McDonald's. That's with cheese and without. And of course, the cheese costs more, so a good Orthodox Jew is not going to pay more, so he has his without. Maybe that's the reason. Uh, I got information about McDonald's in Israel straight from the horse's mouth. A horse by the name of Alan Dunbar, who goes to Israel every time he turns around, it seems like. And if you want to take a tour with him, go along and he can point out where the kosher and the non-kosher McDonald's are over there. Many people look at this law and are disgusted at the very notion of a young goat being cooked in its own life-giving sustenance. And I'm one of them. The whole idea here is repulsive and an insult against nature, the, dig the dignity of motherhood, whether of animals or human. Well, while pondering this law, strange law for lo these many centuries, 
we finally got a clearer understanding of maybe why God didn't want the Israelites to do such a detestable thing as boil a kid in its own mother's milk. And we got this help from the work of archaeologists. In my younger days, I dreamed and thought I wanted to be an archaeologist when I grew up. The trouble is, I never learned how to spell it, so I never became one. But archaeologists are people who study old civilizations by digging up where these civilizations used to be, and they sift through what they dig up and they analyze it, and then they draw conclusions about what life must have been like way back when. And this has been helpful in explaining some of the things in the Bible that were hard to understand. Now, people sometimes think that archaeology proves the Bible. Correct. But that's not the issue. The Bible is God's word, and it is true, whether archaeology says it is or not. But the findings of archaeology do help us understand things that made perfectly good sense, like way back in the days of Moses, but are hard to understand as centuries have passed and cultures have changed. In 1929, in northern Syria, archaeologists dug up a whole bunch of writings on clay tablets that went back to Canaan at the time the Israelites left Egypt and were headed for the Promised Land. And on these tablets, there is mention of a magic rite that was supposedly guaranteed to produce early rains for the farmers in those days. Now, rain, of course, was important for producing crops in ancient Canaan. It's almost as important as snow is for the ski lodge industry of Montana today. So Canaanite farmers were always on the way to ensure that they got their much-needed rains in the right time and sequence. And what this magic rite that was depicted there called for was to boil a young goat in its own mother's milk, just like the Bible spoke about. It was something pagan. It was done in obedience to a pagan god. But don't you suppose maybe it could have been enticing to an Israelite farmer as well? You know, they might have reasoned, well, it couldn't hurt and you got to play to win. So, uh, like a lot of people think today. And yet, what would they have been doing if they'd taken up this pagan practice? The one, they would have been buying into a superstition, a foolish superstition. They would have been buying into a lie and they would have taken a big step down a slippery slope to fall away from the real God who truly did provide the rain they needed for their crops. So maybe there was a good reason why God put a prohibition against this pagan practice. He was protecting his children from a danger that they might not even be able to see. Just like you may give your children orders on something you don't want them to do. They don't understand, but you are watching out for them, and you're protecting them. When God gave this law, the Israelites were not yet in the promised land. They were not raising crops. They were still out in the wilderness, living off the manna that God gave them every day. Crop raising and concern about rain was yet to come. 
But God gave them this law, this prohibition, well beforehand, and repeated it these three times to prevent them from ever getting entangled in such a pagan practice when they would take up farming in his promised land. Now, the law that I told you about first appeared in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. But if you look further down the, further down the chapter, listen to what God said, beginning in verses 31 through 33. And to his people, he spoke these words well before they ever entered the promised land. I will hand you over to the people who live in the land, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. God did not want his children to get caught in a trap they couldn't get out of. And this strange old law was his protection well beforehand to keep them from ever getting caught. So I think we found the answer to the question of why there ever was such a law as don't boil your kids in the first place. But I didn't come here today just to give you the answer to an ancient riddle. I came here to preach the truth of God's word and to give you something to take home and live with in your walk with God. So what can we see in this strange law that teaches us in an age of grace about our relationship with God and how he wants us to live for him? In this strange old law are three great qualities of God that were the same way he was then, the same way he is now, in the same way he always is. The first quality we can see is that God is a father, and especially a good father who loves his children. He provides for them. He protects them. Everything God does springs from a heart of love for his children. Now, for me, the word father brings up wonderful thoughts. My dad was a great man, and I never doubted his love for me or my brothers. He was all that I could have ever wanted in a father, and I'm very thankful to, to God for that, for providing a father like, like him for me. And yet I know that there are people, maybe even some of you here, who can't say that about your fathers. The mention of the word father maybe leaves a bad feeling in your mind of a father who didn't treat you in the right way, who didn't show the love and affection you needed, who didn't take care of you or watch out for your interests and your needs. A dad who treated you in such a way that to put your experience of how your father was and compare that with God and refer to him as a father maybe turns you away from what I'm saying. And if that's the case, please open up your minds and listen, because I want to tell you about what a father is meant to be, a father you can put all your confidence in. God is our father, and the father of all fathers, and the example of what every father is supposed to be. So if your father happened to be a big disappointment to you, don't blame it on God. Blame it on this awful influence of sin 
and instead look to God as the father you've always wanted and learn from his example of what a good father is and let God be your father. God was the father of the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 4, 22, God himself says, Israel is my firstborn son. He looked upon these people with pride and affection as a father does to his own children, the whole nation of them. And what are the qualities of a father toward his children? Well, he's the source of their life and existence. He loves them with genuine affection. He provides for their needs and he protects them from harm and danger. So going back to the old law about boiling young goats, how do we see God as being the good father to his children, the Israelites? God, by his power, had freed his children, the Israelites, from being slaves in Egypt. Thus, God truly gave the Israelites a new lease on life. His treatment of them was completely loving. When they got hungry, God gave them manna out in the wilderness, day in and day out for 40 years. He provided them with water when they got thirsty and it came flowing out of a rock. He protected them from their enemies and enabled them to overcome those who threatened them. And even in this strange law, we could see God's protection. So God is a, was a loving God to the Israelites, a protecting God, a providing God. And God is very much a father to us today. When Jesus taught us how to pray in that model prayer, didn't he begin with these words, our Father in heaven? And is God not the source of life to us, both physically and spiritually? And when we look at what God has blessed us with, don't we have so much to be thankful for? We have a loving Father who provides us with daily bread, with means to earn a living, with shelters to live in, with families and friends. We have salvation and the gift of eternal life through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And you know, we probably don't know all the times that God has protected us from harm that might have come our way, but for his watchful and protective care over us. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll be able to look back and see what he had done for us all this time. Our God is an awesome God is the way one songwriter put it, and how true it is. God gives life to us. He loves us. He provides for our needs. He protects us. He is a good, good father. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. The second quality of God that I want you to consider as we look at this old law is something that may surprise you. God is a jealous God. Listen to Exodus chapter 20, verses one through five. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Does that bother you that God is jealous? Or can you grasp what he is saying? He's making it clear that he is the only God. And he expected his children to worship him and respect him as the one and only true God. The Egyptians, where they'd been held in slavery and bondage, worshipped a bunch of little g-gods, spelled with a lowercase letter, idols we call them. And ten times God, the true God, had proved himself the better of these false gods, to the point that Pharaoh of Egypt finally gave in and says, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go! God had made his point to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had gotten it. But the Israelites needed to have it spelled out for them as well. God is a jealous God, and he didn't want his children flirting around with other gods. Not that he's insecure, as we tend to think of jealousy sometimes, but rather for the simple reason that he knows he is the God, and he has no room for other gods. So knowing the potential influence his children would come up against when they finally would get into the land he was promising them, God gave them a simple prohibition against a harmful and dangerous practice to prevent them from doing something they would come to regret, getting tangled up and snared in the worship of pagan gods. God never gave up on jealousy. Oh, he's still the same today as he was 3,500 years ago. He longs to have our affection and devotion, totally and absolutely. He doesn't want you flirting with the ways of the world that will lead you away from faithfulness to him. With intense zeal, God yearns for your steadfast faithfulness and devotion to him. He wants you to be useful for his kingdom and not distracted by the foolish and vain things of this world that can become our idols. Money, the quest for wealth and security is one idol that maybe comes to mind right away. Our careers, our hobbies, uh, our personal interests and things that may be good in some measure, but whenever we devote our time and attention to the extent that they consume us at the expense of our relationship to God, then these things have become our idols. As God himself declared, he is jealous. He loves you, he wants you, and he doesn't want to lose you. Be true and faithful to him, to God. There's the greatest commandment that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The words of Jesus printed in red in our Bibles. The third quality we can see of God in his strange old law to the Israelites is this. God is holy. That was the big point God was making to the Israelites by this command to not boil a kid in his mother's milk. Holiness being holy people. They were to be like God and not like the pagan people who worshiped false gods and idols. The God of the Israelites was and is holy. 
Holy is one of those words that maybe it's kind of hard to wrap our words around, our, our minds around. But what it means is this, separate and set apart, first of all. God is separate from the sinful ways of this world. God is pure. There's no trace of sin in him, only that which is good and pure and noble. His people were themselves to be separate from the pagan ways of the world. They were a chosen people. And when God used the thou in the Ten Commandments, he was drawing a sharp line of difference between the Israelites and the pagans. You, Israelites, are different. You are not pagan idolaters. You are mine, and I am holy, and you are to be like me. You are to be holy. And so for us today, God is holy, and we, his people, are to be holy. Remember again how Jesus taught us to pray. The very first words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means holy. And that is the very beginning point of our thinking and praying to God, recognizing his holiness and tying that to our relationship with him. When we pray, we need to mentally and spiritually take off our sandals like Moses did at the burning bush, for we are standing on holy ground. We're right before the throne of grace in heaven when we pray to God. And God has called us and made us holy. He cleansed us and purified us at the waters of baptism and gave us his Holy Spirit to live within us. We are, no, we are now a people made holy, and always before us is the purity and holiness of God as a standard for us to follow. Listen to these words from the Apostle Peter. First from First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, he's addressing Christians, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And then... In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. We worship a holy God. A holy God has cleansed us from the filth of the world, and we are to be holy as he is holy. It's clear as can be. God is holy. We, his people, his children, are to be holy. This old law given to the Israelites not to boil a kid in his mother's milk expressed God's fatherly love for his children, his jealousy for them, his intense desire for their affection and their faithfulness to him, and his holiness in their relationship with him. We're not pagans. They weren't to be pagans. They weren't to respect pagan deities. And these wonderful qualities of God lead us to respond to him in similar fashion. Since he is our father, we are to trust in him and his care for us. As he is jealous for us, we are to be faithful to him. And just as he is holy, so we are to be holy, to imitate him, to obey him, 
and to be wholly like him and unto him. You know, as I ponder God's giving this strange law against boiling kids to his children, the Israelites, and he didn't do such that in a whimsical way or an arbitrary way, but rather because of his love for them. I think also of a time way back in the beginning when God told a couple of his children back then not to eat of a certain tree or they would surely die. And you know what? Those foolish children ate and they died. And because of what they did back then, so even now we have to die. Sin is a horrible trap. You get caught in it, you can't get out. Earlier I read how God didn't want the Israelites to get caught in a snare or a trap. And that's why he gave every law, every commandment, every prohibition that he ever gave to his children. He was trying to protect them from that trap of sin. He loved them and wanted what was best for them. And he loves us and wants what is best for us. But there's that trap of sin that gets a hold of us. Now, praise God, most of us here have made our way out of that trap through faith in Jesus Christ. And we're free. And Jesus freed us from the sin of the, at the price of his own life's blood. And we praise God for his great love and the gift of everlasting life. But maybe some who are listening to me today know you are still caught in the trap of sin. You face death for your sin, eternal death. You know that deep in your heart, and you want to be set free. Well, we're inviting you right now. If you want to be set free, you can do that, and here is how. First of all, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God's Son, and was sent to be your Savior. Repent. Realize you're, you're living in sin. You have sinned. And now is the opportunity to turn your life around from sin to living right. Confess before God, before us, before the world, with your own mouth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Be baptized in water. Come and share in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ washing away your sins in the name and power of Jesus Christ, and then begin a brand new life. Come up from the waters of baptism, cleansed and free and ready to live a new life, a transformed life in Christ forever. If that's what you want for yourself, then don't put it off any longer. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Won't you come and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior now, today? We have an invitation here.